You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to The Anarchaeologist, bringing you the best in archaeology podcasting. We are part of the Archaeology Podcast Network and today we're going to talk about something a little bit different. This is electric archaeology? Whatever that is. Well, we're going to find out what that is. Today's guest is Sean Graham, whose blog Electric Archaeology has a lot of different things on it. It's quite an interesting conversation, and we'll get to it right about now. I want to first introduce Sean. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. So, obviously, electric archaeology, as you just described, uh, is it's it's a kind of a mix. It's very different to other things. You kind of you almost admit it. You didn't really know why you started. So. Anyway, um, obviously it's a it's a really great blog, and I advise everybody to go and check it out. But I mean, what what do you envisage it to hold in the future? Like, what kind of things are you looking? Can you do you think about for your blog? Well, I like to. I say to some of my students in my class, I will say to them, you know, welcome to the next twelve weeks of things that Dr. Graham thinks are cool, and the blog is a bit like that. It captures my, I think of it as an open notebook these days of things that I'm working on, things that I'm interested in, things I'm intrigued by. And if you look at its evolution over the last, uh, I can't do math in my head, but many years. It's okay. Uh, I can't do math either. <laughs> I, I was trying, I had to start counting on my fingers. And <laughs> but basically it's, it's always been, um, a snapshot of, of just what I've been, what's captured my interest, what I thought was worth exploring. Um, I get a, I get a bit of a kick out of figuring out how to do things and then telling other folks how to do it. Um, I guess it's, it's not for nothing, I suppose, that my Twitter avatar is a minion, but, but it, it's just, it's where it's going in the future. Uh, I don't know. I like using it to highlight the work that my students are doing now. Of course, when I started it, I didn't have students. I was I was off in the academic wilderness. I was hustling to make ends meet. So it was really just, uh, it was a blog just for me to make me feel like I was academic and contributing to the wider world somehow. And uh, astonishingly, people found it and found value in it and found useful things in it. And I, I, it, it directly contributed to my current position. Um, I don't think I would have gotten the job if I hadn't have started giving away everything on the blog. Yeah. Um, it, you know, you can't hoard stuff. So I, I, I gave it away and, and it actually came back to me. If you see what I mean. Yeah. No, that's that's a, one of the great uh, conversations right now, especially about open access archaeology. You know, talking about, you know, making stuff available for everyone is beneficial to everyone. Although there's always, you know, the old fogies who uh, just want to hold on to that precious, precious knowledge. But don't worry, people like us, we, we, we'll spread it out, spread it to the, all the ends of the earth. There's an interesting point, and it's something I've hit into over the last number of months, is what is digital archaeology? Because digital archaeology, for one person, means 
doing digital reconstructions. Another person, it means digging through a hard disk. Uh, a third person is uh, says, you know, oh, it's just going back through archives on the internet. You know, so, like, I mean, you, you know, am I making sense here about the problem with digital archaeology? What does it mean? So it would be cool to hear what you your opinion is and how you, why did you call yourself or your blog Electric Archaeology? Ah, well, it, uh, I started blogging in 2006, I suppose, and I had graduated um, with my PhD in 2002, and the demand for Roman stamp brick specialists in Eastern Canada was rather thin on the ground at the time, <laughs> as you can imagine. Uh, I like that. <laughs> I, I did a stint teaching high school for a while and doing heritage consulting and different things. And in about 2005, I persuaded uh, Professor Leah Sterling at the University of Manitoba that archaeological agent-based simulation of Roman society would be a good thing to do. And so she brought me out to Winnipeg and I spent a great year building simulations and models and that sort of thing. And I had a very static and very boring web page to, to disseminate my models and to communicate my code and so on and so forth. But I lucked out tremendously. Um, a fellow at Brock University in Ontario, John Bonnet, saw that, uh, came out to the CAA in Fargo in 2006 to, to hear me talk about these things. And he started passing me job notices and information, uh, calls for papers, that sort of thing, connected with this, this new digital humanities shtick. And I, one of those that came through was for the first digital humanities workshop at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. So I went to that to, to show off how I... Um, my practical necromancy with agent-based models. And I met Alan Liu there and um, Thomas Ayers and, and lots of really uh, important folks who said, we really like your stuff, but why aren't you blogging this? What's wrong with you? Um, they didn't put it quite like that, but the, the essence was if you're not making your stuff public in a way that people can find it, then why bother? Who are you talking to? Who are you reaching? And so I sat down and started thinking, okay, well, um, blogging, all right. Um, well, I want to blog about my agent models and so on and so forth. And um, electric archaeology just seemed to... Um, roll off the tongue nicely. I like the glottal stops there and the, the vowels. And that's a very long-winded way of saying I don't really remember why I called it electric archaeology. <laughs> Although I didn't, I didn't want to call it digital archaeology because um, that seemed limiting in a way. Um, electric carries that connotation of things that are exciting and that things that are supercharged and things that might go off madly in all sorts of different directions, whereas digital makes me think of fingers and, and hands, and, and there's craft involved in that. But the electric archaeology seemed a, a better fit for, for what I do. And I've been told 
there's people who are topic modeling a bunch of different blogs and they have told me that my blog has many, many, many topics in it. Uh, so it's not, you know, the advice you get about blogging is to keep on a, a topic and keep focused and all that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm all over the place. Now, um, you were also involved with uh, a few other like online things and websites, uh, including Play the Past. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Play the Past is a tremendous site. It's a, a group-authored blog. There's about 20 of us on there at the moment, I think. Um, it was put together by Ethan Wattrell at MSU in the States um, in 2010, I suppose, 2011. And it was a place for archaeologists, historians, um, there's a couple of English folks, um, to, to talk about the, the creative engagement with history, heritage, material, culture, museums, archives, you name it. Um, and it's been hugely successful. I've seen it cited in papers. Um, if you look at her visitor stats, we're always getting lots of traffic, lots of people reading it. I, I've assigned a number of essays from Play the Past onto syllabi. I've seen people float essays on the site and then later turn them into published articles in collections or journals. Um, I think, with no false modesty, I think it's probably one of the best places to go on the web for people who are interested in this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Well. I mean, if you say it's great, it's got to be great, eh? Well, I'm sure. <laughs> and of course, it's a topic that's been reached many times on this podcast. We've had, uh, I don't know if you know Andrew Reinhard. Yeah. He's uh, yeah. hes made quite a few, um, He's he's been on a few shows here. We kind of love him for some reason. He just keeps coming back. hes He's punked his way into our hearts. And as always, it's a really, really cool thing from my point of view, because I I, 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 I I think I was a gamer at one point, not sure right now because of everything else, but I'm a big fan. I don't know, are you a gamer? Well, um, I play games. I don't, I don't identify with the gamer mindset as evidenced through social media. Okay. Obviously that's, yeah, recently it's been a bit all over the place. I like think about Yeah. But, but you play video games, right? Play video games. Oh, yeah. I teach a class where we write video games. That is, that is really cool. Honestly, like so. So, what do you, uh, what do you usually code in? Like, how, how do you make, or what do you kind of do with the video games? Like, tell me about this class. Okay, well, it's uh, history thirty-eight twelve A at Carleton University, and we, I mean, you, you have to take students on an evolution, right? Because we've, we as a culture, as a society, have done a really good job of hammering into people's heads that historians write essays and that is all that they shall do. And if they make films or documentaries, then they're somehow sellouts or less serious or popularizing. So in 3812, uh, I framed the whole class as an exploration of how do we write good history through gaming? How do we write scholarship? So it's not about studying the representation of the past in video games. It's not about teaching people about the past through video games. It's about actually figuring out how to write 
about the past in the same way you would make an argument in an essay and we teach you how to do that. I'm going to teach you how to make an argument through games. So we, we do a lot of the reading, we play games, we watch how each other play games to, to figure out how people actually engage with them, what kinds of things people do. And we start off with twine. I don't know if you've used that at all. I'm not familiar with it, but I, and I, I'm, I'm not sure if my listeners will be familiar with it. Could you kind of briefly describe what it is? Okay, uh, twine is a, um, you can find it at twinery.org. And it is a environment for creating interactive fiction. If you remember the old choose your own adventure books, at its simplest, the twine can be rather like that. But you can add JavaScript to it. You can do quite clever things with loops and variables and so on. And for students who've never engaged with thinking algorithmically in the first place, it is close enough to being like writing an essay that it doesn't feel too scary, but it is far enough away from that that it starts um, fostering these habits of thought about how you generate an argument at one step remove, right? So oral historians talk about sharing authority with the people that they interview in order to write history. Uh, in this class, we talk about sharing authority with the algorithm that somebody else has created in order to generate history through the, the emergent dynamic of the player interacting with the code. And so they start with that, and by the time we're done, they've act, they actually end up building Minecraft worlds that, uh, that express good history. All right. And that's, that's always obviously a challenge because, as noted on this sh- on this uh, show before, you know there's uh, there's a difference definitely between you know archaeology in video games um, as almost like just a texture, like a retexture, and it's just a skinned uh, thing placed upon you know standard mechanics. So what? Yeah. And that that's obviously not what we want to do. We want to actually have something that's far more engaging. So. I mean, how 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 do you see people becoming better at developing historical games? Because obviously, there's a lot different between, like, for example, you know, you take a game like I'm just trying to think of an RTS game, and you know, like I have, let's say, uh, StarCraft. You know, imagine you modded StarCraft and you put it into like you put you put them into little Roman suits, but you still played them with the same mechanics in StarCraft. You know, it wouldn't be a historical game just because you you know you put some Roman outfits on them. No, no, it's the engagement has to happen at the level of the mechanic and the level of the code. So, what's a historical mechanic then? Ah, well, that's the that's the seventy nine cent question right there. Um, I've only got I've, I've only got pence, so actually uh, wait wait wait, give me a second. Uh, I have oh I've got forty p. Is that worth seventy nine cents? Um, <laughs> I did my grad school at Reading, and forty p would get you a cup of coffee in the junior common room. So really, jeez, yeah. what, yeah. what kind yeah. of coffee was that? <laughs> well, it would take the enamel off your teeth, but other than that, it was good stuff. <laughs> Sorry, go on. But uh, well, I'll tell you one one of the groups. Uh, in the class were were interested in in Roman history and Roman archaeology. And so what they did was they they recreated in Minecraft Canina's 16th century map and imagining of 
portus outside of Rome. So you've got a, a 21st simulacrum of a 16th century imagination of, of first century ruins. And they decided to deliberately mess with Minecraft's open world ethos by casting the player in the role of a, of a dock slave, a warehouse slave at Portis. And so by putting that, that juxtaposition, by limiting the agency within a game where everybody knows you're supposed to be doing, able to do anything, they um, were trying to, uh, to make a larger point about, uh, about slavery, Roman world within that particular, um, you know, those, the, the patterns of articulated spaces and how that creates, um, particular sorts of social interactions and, uh, where you can go and where you can't go and that kind of thing. But surely that, uh, relies a little bit on a bit of prior knowledge, doesn't it? Well, it's very rare you come to any topic completely cold. That is that is true. That is true. Those are really quite fascinating things. So how can I get onto this course? Because this sounds like she's seriously. I want to do this. Do you have a long distance one? Please, please tell me you do. I, I'm, well, I'm... I, I do. I do do it as openly as possible. That's a that's a key part of the the philosophy for my teaching is that there's no point in doing work for an audience of one or an audience of zero. I mean, you have 40 students and they all write you an essay and you've got four days to grade them all. You're not really giving it your full attention, are you? So um, they typically, uh, I'll use a blog to house everything. And as much as what I'm, a person could come to that blog and see all of the materials that I'm giving to students, all of the instructions I'm giving to students, all of the readings, all of the background, all of the ancillary stuff. Um, the only thing they don't get is the, uh, the Sean Graham show. But um, I would like to turn that particular course into a fully, officially online Carleton University course. Well, you've definitely got a test subject over here, and I'm pretty sure there's quite a few listeners here who would also like to give it a shot. Well, next uh, next year I will be teaching a fully online course on uh, data visualization, big data, data mining, that kind of thing for history writ large. Uh, and so all and any archaeologists are more than welcome to, to take it. And the philosophy there is I'm putting it all up on GitHub and I want people to fork the materials, to take their own, to improve it, to... Uh, Again, you know, giving it away in order to retain control of it, if, if you see what I mean. You know, it's really funny. I'm sure that anybody who hasn't used GitHub before does not know what the hell forking is. But uh, it's basically... Uh, sorry, go on. You, you probably got a better explanation. Oh, well, it's... Um, I, I provide the initial bit of materials, and then as people copy it, they... Um, and develop it in their own turn or adapt it or add to it. Uh, the material grows. So like a fork in a tree, different branches start splitting off. And the nice thing about GitHub is that a person can take a branch as far as they want and then say to the person who started it all, here, my stuff is really nice now. Why don't you bring it back? And so the, the, the branches get merged and you get this um, crazy wickerwork thing happening uh, over time. So it seemed to me that there's no point in 
building an online course that forces everybody into a walled garden where the outside world can't see what you're doing, can't interact with you, um, especially when we're talking about things like games or digital methods or public archaeology. I mean, that just doesn't make sense to my mind. So by putting it all on GitHub, uh, I allow folks to to take all of those materials. Uh, GitHub keeps track of where stuff goes, so it functions as a kind of citation. And, and we make it better, because Lord knows I, uh, you know, I've just picked this stuff up as I've gone along. It's not like anybody sits you down and trains you up in, in this stuff. Uh, although I guess that's now my job. All right, we're here with Jordan Harbinger from theartofcharm.com again, and we're talking about the Art of Charm podcast. And over the last month, we've had some people write in and comment about the Art of Charm, and they want to know a little more about it. So, Jordan, can you tell us a little more about what they can find on your podcasts? Yeah, absolutely. I know that the term sort of like networking and relationship development is all vague and everything. So basically, we focus on a lot of things, very broad topics. Our toolkits are focused on things like body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, business networking, negotiation, relationship management, et cetera. But we also branch into other topics like I had a guy on the show named Brad Salas, a guest, and he talked about millennials and how they can relate to their bosses better, uh, their boomer bosses, and how boomer bosses can relate to the new millennials better. Because as you can see in workplaces, those are guys are butting heads and it's kids are so dumb these days and it's old people don't get it. And it's just like, if we can bridge that gap, we can be more productive. So we gave a lot of practical exercises and steps to use that. We've also talked about how to burn fat while you're working with weird things like treadmill desks and being cold while you're working in the office to burn calories while you're just sort of being you working all day. And we, we cover hundreds of other things, but those are two kind of concrete examples of it. Hey, and these are real world things you can use. I've actually turned the temperature down in my home office because of that podcast uh, about just being cold because it's something you can do that's easy. Yeah, and there's plenty of guys out there listening to the show who bought these weird ice vests and they're sitting there freezing right now, but, you know, losing weight doing it. So we're weirdos, but we assume we're in good company. That's right. Well, you can check out more from The Art of Charm at theartofcharm.com and you can check out the podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and everywhere you download podcasts. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned, of course, public archaeology. Public archaeology is um, quite a big thing over here, definitely in the UK. And it looks to be something that's getting going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, we on the Anarchaeologist podcast um, actually consider public archaeology to be the future of archaeology. But not everybody agrees with us. Where would you say you lie on that point? If you're not doing it for the public or in public, why the hell are you doing it? Well, I'm glad we've got another recruit. Yes, the army gets bigger. <laughs> well, you know, like the Day of Archaeology people have done a tremendous service in in making what archaeologists do transparent and and raising the, the profile. I mean, ultimately, all of the money that goes into archaeology is coming out of the public, at, you know, one end or another. So... Um, it's a shame that it doesn't have the prestige. Is that the right word? Possibly. Possibly. I think I know what you mean. Yeah. The kind of the, the public value, the kind of immediate kind of like, yeah, value and intrigue that it warrants. Yeah. But I mean, there's public in the sense of things that are good for you. And then there's public 
in in the sense of things that the public actually reads and wants, right? It's like the Times versus the Sun. Yeah. <laughs> and it's um, and there's a lot of space to be negotiated there, and a lot of thinking and work that needs to be done. But that's just another. That's uh, just uh, that's another part of being an archaeologist, isn't it? I mean, we're all about mediation. I think archaeology for me is a. It's almost like a meta subject. It's almost in some ways a way of life. And what it means is you don't kind of at the end of the day kind of, put, you know, take off your hat and hang your whip up on the wall. You know, you kind of you engage all the time. And and I I'd love to I I really love to see people online kind of you know continuing and to put stuff out there like you do i think that's that's really great i mean they that's the kind of direction i'm coming from in with regard to public archaeology because it's one of those things that really i think we need to hear the public needs to hear from about archaeologists from archaeologists not like through special kind of delivery systems you know like um only through like tv shows or only in museums you know archaeologists are everywhere and yeah what they mean well i did um i did a project a few a what was it in 2011 and then again in 2014 i tried to map the archaeological blogosphere and figure out whether or not we're just talking to each other, whether we're shouting to the void or whether or not we're actually reaching people. And I mean, people like Lorna Richardson and Colleen Morgan uh, do um, similar kinds of things. And there's, as far as digital archaeology goes, I, I've always told people that I consider digital archaeology to be a kind of public archaeology as well. In 2011, it was possible to get your message out there much clearer. Um, when I mapped it again in 2014, the, the advertising web, the, the cruft, all those, those tendrils of trackers and ad servers and all that sort of thing, um, it, it's really quite parasitic on the underlying structure of the web and it strangles it out. So, you know, to take another gardening metaphor, it's I don't know whether to spread manure or, or get a blowtorch. <laughs> well, I, 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 you know, let, let, you should, <laughs> I think we should uh, holster our flamethrowers for the moment. I mean, they are a special items, so we, we'll need to go and find the fuel for them. But I, th I think um, I think we should uh, continue to like spread the love. I, th I, th you know. At the Archaeology Podcast Network, we're always looking for more podcasts, actually. We're hoping to expand and to add more shows to our roster, and we'd love to have more people adding to the voices. Hopefully, I don't think we'll ever drown out the trackers, but, you know, we, we make a dent. But what do you think about people um, in certain circles? I mean, I know you said about it's not as clear now, but um, what about the interactions between archaeologists versus the interactions with the public? Well, those are very strong. You can see, you can see that. And I, I think um, with the decline of commenting on blogs and the rise of Twitter in the, in the same space, um, that kind of stuff, I think, seems to be going fairly strong. Although, um, frequently I despair when I'm on Twitter, um, when you see the, the bullshit that goes through and, you know, especially, you know, here I sit, I'm a, a white middle-aged guy, 
uh, you know, it's, it's easier for me to do and say things than it might be for, you know, for somebody else. Yeah, no, and that's something that, you know, people would think that the internet kind of got over, you know, like, oh, we're all anonymous on the internet, therefore everybody's got the equal chance, but when in reality it's most likely white male, middle-class males who actually have access and have the time to do uh, to do online stuff, you know? I, I remember writing a, uh, a very long-winded essay about um, the use of uh, possibly using uh, modding um, on a base game to kind of help people reinterpret historical places. And I, I remember actually speaking to somebody who was quite knowledgeable on, um, on kind of like, uh, you know, kind of like digital access and things like that. And, you know, they were pointing out to me that, you know, while, yes, you can make it available on the internet for everyone, there's still the problem of who gets to access the internet. And that's always something to think about, isn't it? When we were doing this online stuff about where we get, uh, where our outreach goes. Well, this is it. And there's just been published this week, uh, I think a profoundly important piece by Sarah Perry, Lucy Shipley and Jim Osborne in Internet Archaeology, issue 38, on digital media power and inequality in archaeology and heritage. And, you know, one of the things that they draw out there is the is archaeologists abusing each other on the web. And... Um, the, the experience of this and how it, you know, often it's people you actually know in the real world, too, who are doing this to each other. And it's, and, uh, you know, and it's completely gendered as well. It's, That's, that, that is a shame, you know. Um, you know, we've got to clean up our own house before we can go too much further. No, you're completely right. And it's, it's such a shame because, um, like, I, I, you know, my, my, my uh, foray into online archaeology has actually been as long as this this um, show has been around because uh, before August 2014, I didn't feel I had a reason to actually interact because I didn't have anything. You know, there was nothing, like my hands were empty. And when I started doing the show, that's kind of what gave me the impetus to kind of say, hey, I've actually, you know, I'm, I'm interesting, guys. Uh, but what I've noticed actually on my Twitter feed is that... Um, a lot of the archaeologists I follow um, are actually um, women, and like I, I, I didn't notice it until somebody like kind of asked me because we we're talking about gender and different places, and uh, you know they'd asked me like in archaeology what's the balance like, and I said well I've always found it you know on the level of archaeologists very very balanced, even almost like tipped slightly towards uh women and i've noticed actually my 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 twitter feed's quite full of really really great archaeologists who so happen to be women and i think archaeology is one of those subjects that definitely at the kind of you know at the base level or you know before you get into like higher academic positions is actually quite well balanced uh, but that's that's just my view, you know. I, c I could be blind to the real prejudice going on, you know. Well, it's certainly yeah. I think in the as as the profession grays, it becomes more and more male, and 
the reasons for that um, don't necessarily reflect very well on the profession, I think. Yeah, no, it is it is one of those issues. I mean, how, how, how do you think we can change that? How, what can we do? Oh, bloody hell. Um, <laughs> well, you know, uh, in my current position, uh, my title is not as an archaeologist. Okay. Uh, I had to completely reinvent myself, right? And it's only in this weird world of academia that you can be 40 years old and be the junior guy. Yeah, that's uh, what it is. But uh, in order, in in terms of, I have no good answer. That's, that's okay. <laughs> Not say, but only just, yeah. Yeah. No, you you completely right though. It's there is no. I don't think there is one singular answer. I think that's the biggest problem. There's no one singular, non-complex answer. And I mean, my own particular trajectory through this field and, and into this current position is just so weird and odd. I, you know, you can't, you know, students will ask me what they should do. And I'll be like, well, whatever you do, don't do what I did. And they'll say, well, what did you do? And I'll say, well, I, <laughs> I kind of just bumped uh, from thing to thing, ricocheting, you know, like there's, yeah, I don't know. There doesn't seem to be a lot of paths in archaeology like other subject, like other areas of work. You you have like certain paths, you know, like if you wanted to be, um, I don't know, a technician or engineer, you know, you, you do your apprenticeship or you go and study and then you go work and then you get promoted and you end up being like a floor shop manager or you know you kind of get up to the point where you're creating new machines i mean but archaeology doesn't seem to have a pathway in terms of how you get there because everybody comes from so many different uh, places like i i i started off as i was a chemist um, about five years ago, I was a chemist, a pure chemist at uh, do it, like studying chemistry, and you know I had nothing to do with archaeology. And then I, I I took archaeology as a as an extra subject at uni, and here I am, you know. But that's obviously an issue when it comes to saying, well, how do I plan to become an archaeologist? How do I put the effort in? And there's no real answer to that either. No. You have to be open to serendipity yeah. for a, for part of it, but that's no good answer when you're, you know, you're staring sixty thousand dollars in student loans in the face, yeah. or you know, you you missed uh, you missed a payment, and the uh, the research body has turned you over to a collection agency, which happened to a friend of mine. Um, but 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 in saying that what the situation does mean is that people from many many different backgrounds come together through archaeology you know you've got you're working with people who have come from backgrounds that maybe are programming or computer backgrounds you've people coming from archaeology uh, no architectural backgrounds you got people coming from all these different areas and you know but they're all linked through archaeology and i think that's that's a really great kind of way of looking at it I just, yeah. you know, I just wanted to balance it out a little bit. 
Well, that's that's it. I mean, I think for me personally, and, and speaking for you know a sample of only one, um, I went through school. I did everything right. I did everything I was supposed to do. I did it on the uh, timetable. I um, and I got to the end of that in two thousand two, and I was pissed at the world. Um, I felt I was owed something. I did everything that everybody asked me to do. I did it uh, at personal cost. And at the end of it, there wasn't a damn thing. I was living out of my suitcase. I was living in the freaking motorway hotel on the M. Is it the M5 that goes through Reading? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I was living out on the motorway hotel and on the train every day to three different gigs trying to, to keep things going. And I, I was super pissed off at, at everybody in the profession, everybody more senior than me, everybody more junior than me, everybody who sneered at me when I was at grad school as a foreigner because I was paying the fees and they weren't and I was clearly had bought my way into the into the program. Um, you know, and it, it took a, a long time to, to get over that. And and so there, you know, there were two key things that happened for me. One was um, being a substitute teacher at a high school and then a, a one-year contract to cover somebody else who'd had a breakdown uh, working with a particular program and working with those kids uh, whom nothing had ever worked for them. I had one student say to me, sir, I, I haven't passed a math quiz since I was in grade four, you know, 10 years previous. Um you know, working with those kids uh, got me out of myself and um, started making me realize, okay, uh, I have this archaeological way of looking at the world, but it doesn't look as if archaeology as a profession or a life is going to be for me. And that was the, the first part of the transformation, right? I had to get over myself. And the second part was the blogging and was doing, starting to explore and play digital work and just giving away what I was doing because um, I wasn't being paid. I wasn't, nobody was asking me to do this. Nobody asked me to, to sit down and figure out how to do topic modeling or whatever. And giving that away started giving me um, a position where I could start saying stuff because there were few voices Right. So uh, I was by no means the best voice to, to listen to, but I was there was stuff that people could find. And when eventually things started shifting uh, in academia and in the world more generally, um, I was positioned all of a sudden to actually say in good conscience, actually, I can do that. That is. I am the person you are looking for. These are the droids you are looking for. <laughs> um, you know, in, in 94, I was an undergrad and I wrote a paper on why the web would never be useful for academics. So, wow, really? Uh, did you, do you know that actually sounds like, um, I, I remember having lost, um, well, having a hard disk crash in me and getting a replacement made me going back and through all my uh, hard disks and, I guess that sounds very much like, uh, you know, the poetry you write when you're like 13 and it's really edgy. Yeah. No, I can imagine your, your paper on how the internet oh, can never be used. 
Well, you know, it's sometimes you get that assignment from a prof and you're just so angry about it that you want to stick it to the prof for making you do this stupid thing in the first place. <laughs> yeah, well, this was a class on Etruscans and it, the assignment was go onto the web and make an annotated bibliography of what you find. So I went to Alta Vista and I typed in Etruscans and the first thing that came up was the Sex Communist Manifesto. Oh my and I do sat down to write about what a waste of time this whole web thing was. I conceded that email might possibly be useful. Oh, well, at least at least you were forward thinking in that way. <laughs> yeah. So basically, that that's by way of disclaimer about everything I've said here this afternoon could well be full of crap. No, I, I think I, I think I really actually have really enjoyed listening to a lot of what you've had to say that that's actually really fascinating i've i think you're probably the first guest i've had on that's actually we've had this kind of i feel we've had a connection sean i feel we have a connection <laughs> but obviously um obviously it's it's electric it is oh oh and uh you could say we have a chemistry between us um <laughs> Uh, another thing that I like to say is all archaeologists like bad jokes. I don't know if you ever. Uh, uh, what do you think of that? Do you agree or disagree? All archaeologists. To, well, uh, I have published a paper called "Rolling Your Own." So, ah, oh, there. There you go. <laughs> Um, one of your recent uh, blog things was on hearing the past, and obviously I'm very interested in that because obviously this is all about hearing and what people can hear. Uh, but obviously it's something a little different than what I'm thinking. So can you tell us a little bit about hearing the past, the blog post recently on electric archaeology? That Hearing the past is a, a paper that I'm writing with uh, Stu Eve, Colleen Morgan, and Alex Alexis Pantos. Um, Stu, even I, a while ago, were playing around with a piece of code from Ed Summers, who's a digital archivist, and he coded up this thing called EC, which pulls from Wikipedia all of the pages within a kilometer of your location, and it shows which ones are complete, which ones aren't, and so on and so forth. And... I started feeding that through a music algorithm because I wanted to make that digital layer um, thick. The idea being that you would be listening to this kind of ambient techno music and when, when the digital layer in that physical place started getting heavier and heavier, the music would become more and more um, abrasive and abrupt and terrible and noisy and cause you physical pain so you would have to stop and it would actually force you to look at where you were with with new eyes or conversely uh, places that were thin uh, you know why why isn't this place important in the in the digital world I, i've been interested in in aspects of augmented reality for a while but augmented reality through a smartphone or through a tablet is is clunky and gimmicky and shite that's a very good way of putting it. I must say, I couldn't have put it any better myself. Well, I and I've got shaky hands to begin with, and I can't get <laughs> the damn camera focused. So, but this is the other thing, right? All this digital stuff privileges people with good sight, um, physical mobility, um, hands that work. You know, 
And sound actually is can be more effective and effective when you start looking into the cognitive connections between sound and memory and, and emotion. Um, so we started playing with that and Stu um, wired it into a computerized voice emulator thing. And so now you get all of these, we called it historical friction. And all of these voices overlay and start shouting at you in, in, in these thick places. At the Heritage Jam at York last year, um, Stu and company took that base gimmick that we built and adapted it to the York Cemetery so that, you know, plague pits and mass graves that have no stone uh, clamor for your attention when you hear all of these voices interred within, whereas the, the monstrous monument that only has one person in it has only one, one small voice telling you the story. Um, so they called it Voices Recognition. And we were invited to uh, a unconference at Brock University on seeing the past and so in typical contrary fashion, we began with, you can't see the past. Uh, the past is gone, but you might be able to hear it. So we, that piece on the blog is our contribution to that conference, which eventually will be published in an open access volume. And I'm really getting quite interested in these other ways of merging the digital with the physical that don't concentrate on sight um, Stu's PhD thesis, Dead Man's Eyes, uh, on embodied GIS, uh, is a tremendous piece uh, that I would encourage everybody to pick up, uh, British Archaeological Reports. And, you know, I have a student uh, named Hollis who is in a motorized wheelchair, and he would come to class, and the the accessible access to our lecture theater actually opened up onto the podium where I was. And I kept putting the damn chair in front of that door and I would block it before Hollis could come in. And um, I smartened up eventually. And Hollis and I have been working together on a number of different things since then. And seeing the kind of crap that Hollis has to put up with in order to study, in order to, to get the readings for a class. Um, <laughs> I said to him one afternoon, I said, yeah, you should go to one of these unconferences. They're really great. People sit down and propose things to talk about and they build stuff together and all this wonderful stuff happens. And he looked at me and said, if they're so damn easy, why don't we do one? Uh, uh -huh. So we called off and we ended up hosting a, an unconference on accessibility and we we recorded all of the conversations that were happening because we were also simultaneously broadcasting it through an accessible web system to people who couldn't physically be there and Hollis has since been analyzing those transcripts with data mining and sentiment analysis and different things and you know the the division between people who are interested about digital media and physical accessibility versus those interested in open access, uh, there was such a huge cleft there between the two. And if open access means anything, it's got to mean 
accessibility in terms of physical accessibility as well. Uh, so, you know, working with Hollis has been one of the great things about my time here at Carleton. Uh, and so, yeah, that hearing the past, um, it comes out of, out of that whole, whole milieu. That's, that's, uh, that's so fascinating. That story's great. I love this. This is fantastic. I must say though, when you were talking about the voices getting louder and louder till you, you, you know, you had to stop listening, I might have a higher than normal tolerance for that, you know, because some of the music I yeah. listen to is quite, um, I don't know how to put it in a nice way, harsh, um, <laughs> or very brutal, brutal, there we go. So actually, you know what, I might find myself liking the uh, loud crescendos of sound. Uh, I, I will have to, I will have to definitely uh, check some of that stuff out. It works best on Chrome on the desktop, which kind of undermines the whole point. But I'm a crap coder, oh, so okay. <laughs> if some, if somebody would like to fork it and make it work better, I would be eternally excited about that. Well, thank you very, very much for coming on the show. It's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for I asking. I don't think we actually had a topic at the end there, but I think you know for the entire show, I think it was just basically a conversation with the. Yourself, and that's that's sometimes what you just need. Yeah. Well, if anybody wants to check out your blog, they go to electricarchaeology.ca. All right, thank you very much for everybody listening. Thank you to my guest. And if you're interested in other shows, as usual, you can head over to the Archaeology Podcast Network for more information. So, in the meantime, get forking, get on GitHub, and remember you can't see the past, but you certainly can hear it here on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks. Fail big or go home. <laughs> that was fantastic. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Archaeology Podcast Network.